It is our very final uh, time in this great book. And uh, Joshua 23 and 24 this morning are all about this final address of Joshua's. It's kind of like his legacy address, if you like. You might remember when Barack Obama was handing over his presidency and he had two speeches. One was a kind of fun speech where really he just kind of took the mickey out of Donald Trump for an hour and um, then dropped the mic at the end. You might remember that. Uh, But there was also another one. It was a political one. It was all about what he believed his presidency had achieved. He was really trying to prove what his legacy would be to the United States of America and to the world. And what we have today is a kind of legacy statement, an address from Joshua that says, this is what I want you to remember. He's speaking to the the gathered people in the Israelites. It's, It's a sermon, really. And he's saying, this is what I want you to remember. Now, with Obama... Um, his legacy will be judged by history, won't it? We probably don't know. Maybe some of us have some different ideas of what we think people will remember him as and what his presidency was like. And some of you will have strong opinions one way or the other. But actually what we have here is something quite different. It's not that Joshua is trying to prove himself. It's not that Joshua wants his own legacy. But actually this is centred all around the worship of God. And that's what we've seen time and time again in Joshua, isn't it? It's all about God. It's all about directing the people back to God. It's not really about Joshua. You remember right at the beginning of the book in chapter 1, God gives Joshua this awesome charge. I imagine quite a scary charge as Israel's great leader Moses has died. And it says this, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left, that you may be successful where you you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And then over the course of the book, it becomes increasingly clear. Joshua embodied God's call on his life. He'd become one of the greatest leaders to ever live. He'd finally led the people into the land with great courage. He he takes them through the waters of the Jordan as, as God parts the waters and he takes them into the land and there's all these scary tribes, these tribes who are ferocious in battle and he leads them with great courage into battle, remembering and trusting that God is fighting their battles but still taking steps of faith one at a time, one after the other and leading the people into the land. The essence of what Joshua left God's people in this last address, this final sermon, could be narrowed down to two pieces of advice. Number one, remember God's ways. And number two, choose the way. Now, I'm not going to read the whole text 
uh, because almost all of it is summarized in one part of the passage. So that's where we're going to go. So turn, if you have a Bible with you, to Joshua 24. And we'll start in verse 16. We won't. We'll start in verse 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the river Euphrates and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through whom we traveled. And the Lord, Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people each to their own inheritance. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see how we can have Joshua-like faith. Help us to see how the narrative unfolds from this moment and means that we now sit under grace. And we now can have Joshua-like faith. Remembering your ways and going your ways one way and we can do that by the power of your spirit so lord i pray that you would help us to see that that we'd leave here encouraged that we'd leave here believing in what you can do for not just us but for the people around us in this great city and this great nation come lord we pray inspire us fill us with faith in jesus name amen so remember god's ways now there are two ways that we tend to remember military victories in the West. One of them 
is nostalgic celebration. We build memorials of celebration, like Trafalgar Square or the Wallace Monument. The other is mournful remembrance. We wear poppies, we build cenotaphs, we observe silences and we repeat lest we forget. But, as Andrew Wilson points out, he's the one that pointed that out to me as well, is that in his book he says this, the shape of biblical remembrance is that God has done and so he will do again. So the way that we remember things in scripture, the way that we look back at God's story is not with mournful remembrance or a celebration of victory. Actually, it's very different. It's God has done and God will do again. God did it in the past, so he's going to be able to do it today in my life and in the future. God has done and so God will do. These are God's ways. We look at his ways and we see that God is faithful and unchanging and that they are always his ways. Our loving God does not change. And so we don't look back at a particular time and say, oh, wasn't that a dreadful moment? Never to be repeated again. Or we don't look back with with victory and celebration and say, oh, wasn't that wonderful? But it's never to be repeated again. Actually, we look back through it, the great story of God's unfolding salvation for us, and we say, because he has done this, he will do this for me today. As we look back at what God has done, we recognize his ways, and he turn us with hope towards the future. That's why Joshua doesn't only recount what's happened in his lifetime, or even just extend this reminder to Moses and the previous generation in Egypt, but he goes all the way back, all the way back to the beginning of Israel's story. He wants to remind them where it all began. So he goes all the way back to Abraham, this old man worshipping false gods in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Now, in that context, Abraham would have been a loser. He's old, he's not had kids, and he's worshipping all kinds of gods. And as wrong as it was, that man, because in that society, having children and passing on your seed was such an important thing, that he'd have been, him and Sarah would have been seen as losers. And yet... What happens to Abraham, this pagan, pluralistic loser? In those days, he's shunned to the side. But what does God do with him? God sees him. Joshua wants to remind the people that God saw Abraham when he did not deserve any of God's love. He did not deserve to be plucked out over anyone else. There was nothing about him that was attractive. Nothing about him that that made him someone that should deserve salvation. And yet God still sees him, loves him, 
and promises him that he will build a nation through him. He has compassion on him. He has love for him. He has love for Sarah. And even though they don't deserve it, even when they laugh in the faces of the face of God when he promises them this great promise, he still loves them. The first thing Joshua wants to do is not remind them of some great victory in battle or even to lament over the cost of those victories. He wants them to remember that God, like a passionate husband, chased them down, saved them and poured out his love on them. Proverbs 5.18 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Remember your young love. Now that's true of your marriage. You're married. Look back to that moment where you first fell in love. But it's also true, it's a biblical theme, where you look back at when you first realised that God loves you. Look back at when, that moment where you realised, I do not deserve this in the slightest, but God, you adore me, you love me. And you've made me a child of yours, and I can call you Abba, Father. I belong to you. It's crazy, you know, that you're a Christian. It's crazy that you are saved. It's miraculous. You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be sat here right now. There's nothing you've done to deserve God's love. Paul reminded the Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You were dead! Now you're alive. Funerals are hard experiences, but they're about one of the most healthy events that we can go to in life. They remind us of the reality of this world we live in. And they act as little moments, little glimpses, little interjections in a world that is so often dominated by denial and self-protection from the realities of the world's brokenness. Most of us don't encounter death like people used to. We only see little glimpses of the process, don't we? It's a, it's a sanitised version, though, even for those who see that up, front, uh, up close. You might be the bystander who witnesses a, an accident or witnesses someone going into cardiac arrest. You might be the paramedic who arrives to find that person who is dead or dying and seek to revive them on the way to hospital. You might be part of the team of doctors or nurses and the the rest of the the hospital team who try and revive this person when they arrive in hospital before pronouncing the death. You could be a family member who says goodbye too soon and has to arrange all the funeral details. You may work in the mortuary or funeral directors, but you most likely didn't know them. It's It's an impersonal thing. But you're very unlikely to regularly see and smell the whole process of death. That has not been the norm for human beings throughout the centuries. 
This is a modern way of dealing with death. A way of making it seem palatable when in fact it should be nothing but. It should shock us. It should make us think. It should make us grieve that this terrible, horrible consequence of a broken and sinful world is that we die. And that people die too soon. It should make us, most importantly, realise that the death of a person is a representation of an even greater problem. Separation from God. You are spiritually dead. Like a dead person ready to be lowered in the ground. No residual breaths boxed in, bound by Satan. The smell of the sin increasingly causing you to rot. And you are about to be lowered into that grave. Separated from the people you love and separated from God forever. That's the truth. But you know what? God loved you so much anyway. God loves you because he loves you. You did stink. You were stinking of sin. But God loves you. He loves you anyway. He loves you because he loves you. We don't have to prove a thing. You were dead in your sins, but just as Abraham and Sarah were called out of obscurity and impending death without having anything to show for it, God saw them, loved them, gave them mighty promises. God did the same with you. He saw you. He loves you. He says, I want to give you mighty promises. I love the words of John Newton in uh, Amazing Grace. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. One of my favourite moments in the last year since we moved up um, from Poole to Glasgow to see this church planted was when um, we saw three people all at once respond to a uh, a word that Stu had about people coming to faith that morning. And I think, I don't know if there's a dry eye in the room. Those people just came forward, tears streaming down their faces. We prayed for them and they received this glorious message of salvation and they put their trust in Jesus because they realized that God loves them. It's so beautiful when people realize that God loves them. That even though we don't deserve it, God loves us so, so much. We can be confident as we look forward in our lives. Because as we remember what God has done in our lives and beyond to the people of God throughout the ages, all the way back to Abraham, we can be super confident that God sees us, loves us, and has found a way for us to be with him forever and ever and ever. As we look back, we can have confidence that God is with us as we move forward. That's the first thing that I think Joshua would want us to remember. Remember God's ways. Not just because he's done mighty things, but because he continues to be God. And his ways continue, and he continues to do mighty things with us. The second is choose the way. Choose the way. Everyone chooses worship. 
everyone chooses worship. After the call to remember, Joshua gives us a, a startling choice. Now at first read, you might assume that Joshua is giving the people a choice between Yahweh, the one true God, or foreign gods. That, that sh- that's the way I used to read it. But actually, Joshua seems to be bringing a prophetic judgment on the people. He is saying that the people will turn away from God and need to choose. They need to choose what to worship. If you're going to worship something else, it doesn't make sense to be pluralistic. It doesn't make sense to worship many things and many gods. You might as well choose one. Choose the the gods from beyond the Euphrates. the, the, The gods that Abraham used to worship. Or choose the modern gods. Choose Choose the gods of today, the gods of the Amorites and their tribes. Choose one. The people will turn away, he says. And they need to choose because we all worship. Then in verse 31, after erecting a stone that would remind them of their future abandonment of faith, we see this. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. So how long do we think that is? Joshua is pretty old by now. And the elders are probably only going to live maybe another 20 years or so. So that means it lasted about half a generation, something like that. So they were adamant, we're going to keep worshipping God. I don't know what you're talking about, Joshua. We're going to keep worshipping God. You've got this wrong. We are never going to turn away from God. 20, 30 years, they're done. Now the point is, everyone worships. And you cannot choose to not be a worshipper. There is no human being on the planet who does not worship. So you are. Humanity began in a garden temple and it will finish in a city temple or centered around a city temple in the new creation. Everything in us is made for worship, to image God. The question is, what do you worship? Go back to the gods before Abraham's calling. Choose the gods of the people around you. Or do we have other gods that we might choose to. I think the writer David Foster Wallace puts it so well in his essay. He says this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what worship. And outstanding reason, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some set of uh, infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. The general pattern for Israelite worship under the law is to be amazed by God, worship God, give him the glory. And then they turn away. They fall away. They get grumpy with God. They cease to give him the glory and they are tempted by some floozy God or invent their own God and run off. Three times in this passage, Joshua tells them they're going to be unfaithful to God. And three times they say, no, we're not. What are you talking about? Reminds me of Peter. 
Twice, he replies to Jesus with the incredulous and defiant declaration that he will not deny him. And then what does he do? He denies him three times. Just as Jesus said he would. Our hearts are constantly being drawn to worship and sometimes it's God. Our hearts are pulled towards idolatry. One of the defining features of, features of any human being in this broken world is a desire to put something or someone else in the place of God. Popularity, money, influence, sex, success. I could go on. We kind of hedge our bets, even as Christians. We start worshipping, we worship God, but then, let's be honest, there's other things that we're, we're drawn to worship as well. The Israelites do exactly that. They, they hedge their bets. The gods of the Amorites too. Yahweh and these other gods. And obviously the result is always that they get dragged away, they get pulled away. Unless you exclusively worship God, you're going to get dragged away. Jesus put it this way, you cannot serve two masters. And remember the whole theme of the land is restoring worship to Israel in an Eden-like return to centering life around God. And what that meant was that they discovered in the meantime that their hearts drifted or sometimes jumped away from God. They did not drift towards indifference or atheism. They drifted towards worship. That is because we are made to worship. Every part of us. But there is only one way to true worship. Verse 24. We see that God is a jealous God. God wants us to worship him alone. Like we've already seen. God is this passionate husband who loves us so much. He's given up everything to be united to his people. We're we're God's people, not the world's. We're, We're not people of the things that draw us in from all around us. God doesn't want to be, want us to be those people. He wants us to be his people, passionate about him, giving him all the glory. Making sure that every part of our life is in worship to God. He is jealous for your whole life. It's as if I was to come home one day and find Lindsay in bed somewhere. You might think, well, you would rightly be jealous in that, at that moment. You might even call it righteous anger. And that is how God views our wandering eye. God wants us and us always. He wants your worship. He wants every part of you. Yet, Joshua declares, As for me and my house, I will serve the Lord. He doesn't care what everyone around him is doing. He will serve the Lord, he says. But doesn't Joshua's faith, like, does that not just seem a bit out of Honestly, I read Joshua's, about Joshua's faith and I'm like, I want that faith. But it just seems so far, so distant. Doesn't the world seem so attractive sometimes that we just want to run off and shape our lives around other things? Let's be honest about this stuff. 
Maybe you've been single for a while and a, a nice guy or a nice girl at work starts giving you attention. It's tempting, isn't it? Maybe you've been made to feel like someone who is judgmental by your friends and family. Simply by being a Christian. They see you, that you're a Christian, and they just assume that you must be really judgmental. And so they treat you with a kind of distance. They put you at arm's length. Maybe I just pretend what God has revealed says something different to what I want it to. That's the temptation there, isn't it? You start to change what God's word says. Because you want to fit in. You don't want to be the judge, seen as a judgmental person. I get it. It's tough. Maybe like me last night. You're on a, a rugby bus. And everyone's getting wasted. And suddenly you just feel totally different. You're suddenly aware that you're a bit weird. And you don't want to be how one Peter describes Christians. Like strangers and foreigners. You don't want to be that. You want to fit in. I get it. It's hard. But you know, a much better Joshua came along. 1,300 years later, and he changes all of this. This man with the same name, meaning salvation, did not just lead God's people through the saving waters of the Jordan and into a physical kingdom, but he led us through the waters of spirit baptism into the kingdom of God. We have thousands of students arriving in Glasgow this week. And some of them will be going to Glasgow University. And if you know Glasgow University, you might know that their coat of arms is Via Veritas Vita. The way, the truth, and the life. They will pass through those gates at Glasgow University that say that on pillars. But possibly not even giving it a second thought. And of course, that is what Jesus said about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. In chapters 5 and 6, Joshua, confronted by the commander of the Lord's army, was told that he had been given the enemy into his hands. And before the mighty city of Jericho, victory was his. That man was Jesus. In Matthew 10, 36, that same commander said he had not come to bring peace but a sword. Joshua was commissioned by God to go into the land that God had given him and promised that everywhere he would put his feet, he would give him the very ends of the land. Saying he would fight his battles and be with him wherever he goes. Remind you of anything? Jesus commissions us. Not just one person, but us, the church. He commissions us that we would go to the ends of the earth as his witnesses, his ambassadors, and fill us with power all the way to the ends of the earth. In chapter 5, the walls of Jericho came crumbling down when the trumpets were blown. Jesus proclaims the walls of the temple will come crumbling down when the trumpets announce his coming. We have been commissioned with a power that the Israelites did not have. In many ways, we have received the anointing of Joshua and Moses and Abraham. God is with us, empowering us, fighting our battles. 
the final verse, verse 33, the final verse of this whole book ends with the burial of a priest, Eliezer, and the continuation of a priestly line through Phineas. Why? Is that just a random finish to the book? Because the whole shape of the Bible story was to make a return to the blessing of Eden. And that required priestly functions around Shiloh, where the tabernacle was, making sacrifices for the people's sin that kept them distant and separated from God. But Jesus comes as the great high priest, able to forgive people's sin forever. The required sacrifice judged in our place, the curtain torn in two. And then when the great high priest rose from the dead, he declared victory over Satan and death. Then he is raised on high and at Pentecost he pours out the power of the Holy Spirit. No need for the Ark of the Covenant. No need for Shiloh or Jerusalem or the inner sanctuary. You are Shiloh. You are Jerusalem. You are the carriers of the presence of God. God lives in you. If you are a Christian today, God lives in you. Within a generation, Israel fails. In their worship. Within a generation after Jesus, what happens? The temple crumbles. And the people in Jerusalem are scattered throughout the world. Do they crumble like the temple? Do they crumble like the people of Israel? No. Because now they're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom of God advances. And God builds his church. And God is still building his church. And that is why you are here. Because the Spirit of God has done something miraculous and wonderful and it's broken out from the centre of Israel to the whole world through people like me. Believe that. Know that. The church is growing. The church is advancing. The church is building. And as it builds and as it grows and as it advances, you know what it's doing? It's filling you with love. It's filling you with an identity as a son or a daughter of the king. It means that you can know God, that you can walk with God, that the presence of God is in you. And it means that you can tell other people about it and that they can join into. Wonderful. Joshua isn't about Joshua. And that's why his legacy isn't about him. These final words are not really about even that time. That time was just a glimpse of something much greater. When the man of the same name, Jesus, comes, rescues us, pours out his spirit, and gives us the glorious kingdom of God breaking out in us.